I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Dean Detloff. And I'm your other co-host, Matt Bernico. This week on the show, we're really excited to have Mark H. Ellis, a pretty legendary Jewish liberation theologian on the show. I feel like it's been years since we have talked about having him on the show, and we're always like, man, wouldn't it be great? And guess what? We finally did it, and it is great. Uh, really wonderful to have him on. Um, Mark, if you don't know about him, has a long, very, very long bibliography of many important and fascinating and good books on liberation theology. He's been a really unique voice in that community for decades, and he has a new book out that we talk about called First Light, Encountering Edward Said and the Late Style Jewish Prophetic in the New Diaspora. And all those terms, don't worry, will become very clear to you in just a minute. Uh, before we get there, Matt, I, I thought uh, one thing that maybe we didn't do enough is set the stage for who Edward Said is. We were so excited listening to Mark talk about him, but maybe folks don't know who he is. So, Matt, uh, who's Edward Said? Edward Said, he is a Palestinian-American academic, uh, a really big deal. If you've ever taken a cultural studies course, you've probably read his essay or uh, on Orientalism, which is, I think, a, it's a good one. If you want to know more about Edward Said, that's maybe a good place to start. Um, but anyways, he's very cool. He died back in 2003, but like, um, a pretty monumental figure in academia, um, among the greats, uh, of like the sort of like late postmodern sort of theorists. He writes a lot about uh, Adorno, uh, Theodore Adorno, and he writes a lot about, uh, you know, Foucault and Gramsci and those guys. So anyways, a key figure, I think, in the history of philosophy and ideas that you should encounter for sure. And if you want to hear from someone who has encountered him, uh, get ready to hear Mark Ellis uh, talk about <laughs> his wonderful uh, encounters with Edward Said and uh, and more. Yeah, he also, uh, Edward Said, comes from a Palestinian Christian background, although he was a, a secular academic, but an interesting thing. And many Palestinian Christians are also very proud of that uh, legacy. Um, and we thought, too, it would be important to have Mark on. You know, we had uh, Jonathan uh, Katab on the show. We talked a bit about Naeem Atik's book last week, and we thought it was important to include uh, a Jewish voice speaking prophetically for peace in uh, Israel-Palestine. So really lucky to have Mark on the show. Go get this book. Go get his other books. Go check out what he's got going on. Uh, you will not regret it. He's an important voice for us today. Now let's turn it over to Mark.
Thanks for coming on the show, Mark. It's a huge honor to have you here. We talk a lot about liberation theology on this podcast, but we don't usually get to talk to an actual liberation theologian, and particularly a Jewish liberation theologian. So it's really exciting that you're here. For listeners who might not be familiar, you've been part of this global liberation theology community for decades. You've worked with all the familiar names, and you are a familiar name yourself. Uh, you know, Gustavo Gutierrez, James Cohn, Rosemary Radford Ruther, the list could, could go on. Uh, you're a really prolific writer. I was trying to look up how many books and articles you've written, and I didn't trust myself to count them all. I felt like I kept finding more and more. So uh, lots to say about your accomplishments, but we're happy to start talking about your newest book uh, called First Light, Encountering Edward Said and the Late Style Jewish Prophetic in the New Diaspora. So we want to talk to you about lots of stuff, but maybe we'll start there. And usually when we have an author on the show, we ask them to give kind of an elevator pitch for the book. So for somebody who maybe isn't familiar or has no idea what it might be about, how would you describe First Light? That's a good question. I, I, I have difficulty describing what I write. But the book is divided into two sections, which would give you an idea. The first section is a journal I was keeping in 2021 uh, around the high holidays, starting before then and going through, which I've often done. And it goes through uh, the beginning and starting in August and going through Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur and after. And one of the main themes is encountering Edward Said. He's a main figure in this because I knew Said. And I was just ruminating about Said as I often do. And then I was asked to zoom into uh, Union Theological, Claudia Carvalho's class. And he offered me, instead of money, he offered me a biography of Said, a new one, which I knew about. But I really didn't want to read the new biography. I, I encountered Said, and Said was such a person to encounter, I thought that was, that was enough. But he sent it, and it turned out that this biographer got him right. It was exactly the way I experienced Saeed. And so I went deeper into Saeed and my relationship with Saeed and all the things around it. And one of the things that's always been interesting to me is, why was Saeed interested in me? Well, you would say first, well, why would he be interested in Jews? He was in a very positive way. But these were mostly high flyers, cosmopolitan Jews in London and New York, Paris. This was Saeed's map. If you weren't in one of those cities, uh, you were somewhere, but he didn't know where. Uh, and I wasn't. Uh, but he came across my work during the first Palestinian uprising, and he wrote to me and asked uh, if we could meet, which again was very unusual. Because Saeed was such a big figure, you had to try to meet him and go through different hoops. So part of the diary, the journal was really a reflection, why was Saeed, a very secular thinker, high flyer, elite, interested in a Jewish religious guy who was being hit around the head and moving from place to place, but it wasn't landing in elite places. I landed in Texas at Baylor University, which was fine but not exactly on Saeed's map. So, but the idea of the journal too 
is that it wasn't just about Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, and it wasn't just about Said. It was whatever I was reading and thoughts that I had about theology. And so we have that as part one of the book. And part two is I was writing essays at about the same time and a little after, reflecting on some of the same themes. Uh, so it's uh, when they came to me and asked to publish the book, uh, I was also confused because it's open access and from a different publisher. And I didn't really know that anyone would read it except university libraries would be interested. And now I see that others are interested, uh, which is also interesting to me. And the book also not only has text, but my photographs of walking on the beach, first light, very important to me spiritually and physically, and my painting, uh, which I started about four years. I just started, no training. So it turned out from the way they laid the book out, it's also quite beautiful and very meaningful to me because it brings parts of my life together that had never been brought together. Uh, and in the second part of the book, which also is part of the first, is a reflection on the Jewish prophetic as it is today. And the late style, through Saeed's understanding of the late style, when everything that you want collapses. What to do when the prophetic, ready to charge in, ready to pronounce judgment, isn't going to win. And the book ends with my diagnosis, my official diagnosis of Parkinson's on Yom Kippur. You know, you had to get an appointment months ahead and I wasn't thinking and, you know, it's hard. And I had the my final test to confirm it. So I asked the question, who's the judge? God or medical procedures? And interesting, uh, this year, not to lay it out too much, Around Yom Kippur, I got my diagnosis of cancer. Now I'm doing well. But that's the theme, too. Uh, theology has its power, but it's also weak. How can we speak about God in terms of injustice, which won't go away? How can we speak about God where the prophetic is a negotiation rather than a finality? And how can we be faithful? within this losing perspective. So those are some of the themes, but it goes way around, as you know, uh, and it doesn't try to be a linear understanding. It's a life, it's, it's, it's a, a way of looking. It's not about me, it's through me looking at the world. And the question it asks, I think for others is through them, how does the world look? So it's very personal, but it's really not to be, and it's a way of doing theology, which I hadn't thought about on a chalkboard way. I just write. So that I think is, you could better describe it if you've looked at the book, but um, that's the way I would describe it. No, I think that's a pretty good way to describe it. Um, I, I've uh, been going through it in the last few days and I've been really drawn in, um, not just by your writing, but by the uh, the paintings and your photography in the book as well. It's a really fascinating, um, a fascinating and uh, capturing way, I think, to do um, to do theology. Uh, well, maybe just to get some of the terminology out here on the table for our listeners. Um, 
you know, in the title in particular and throughout the book, you'll use the the phrase late style Jewish prophetic and new diaspora. Um, there's a lot going on in those terms for sure. So how would you summarize or introduce those two concepts to, to people who uh, might be on the outside of this conversation? Well, Edward Said via Theodore Adorno wrote about the late style, which was about really great musicians, for instance, who are well-known and prominent and terrific, who in their culminating works were, were seeing, everyone wanted them to be magisterial. But often, he noticed, they broke down. They keep deconstructed their own work. And I've been, uh, as some have said, married to the prophetic my whole life, for I don't know for why, except that it's our Jewish indigenous. And I had been writing without that concept of late style, that everything had been falling apart. So what do you do with the Jewish prophetic instead of just saying from the Bible, from the biblical sense, although in the biblical sense, it falls apart too. Uh, but we can, we tend to go back to this pounding sense and you're right, you're wrong and we're right and we're gonna over, you know, it's not gonna work that way. So you can have a late style young. Uh, so that's part of it, the late style prophetic, what is that? And then the new diaspora, we're all, a lot of theology now is about the diaspora. German diaspora, Korean diaspora, Indian diaspora. And there are those who wanna go back to the Jewish diaspora. But to my mind, the real diaspora, the new diaspora is where people of all faiths, cultures, traditions, uh, religions, politics who have been sent into exile or have had to go into exile actually gather because that's their community and they have more in common with those from other faith political cultural religious traditions geographic as well than they often have with their own compatriots and they're not going back so this is very important to name the new diaspora, but it's scary because then you're thinking, well, I'm on my own, but actually you're surrounded by people. And I started this many years ago without naming it in that way. In a biography of Peter Morin, the founder, co-founder of the Catholic Worker I wrote back in, the, before the, I say before the ice ages, but before the glaciers started melting, uh, the, renewal of the prophetic in the 20th century, where I said, you know, Dorothy Day, Gandhi, Buber, King, others, Simone Weil, had more in common with each other than they did with ordinary Catholics, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims. Uh, but now this is even more with our globally connected world and the exile has become deeper and then I asked the question, well, what does it mean to be Jewish in the new diaspora? You can ask the question, what does it mean to be Catholic? What does it mean to be Buddhist? What does it mean to be Muslim? Uh, and we can share parts of our own story in the new diaspora without trying to make the other like ourselves. There's not gonna be any pinnacle, any overreaching. Uh, we're going to have separate communities in a way, but joined by our experience. And we're going to have to learn how to live 
in the new diaspora. But for me, me, the Jewish has a special resonance, obviously, because I'm Jewish. But the prophetic in the late style in the new diaspora is the root still of the global prophetic. So what do we do with that? And do we just blend in? Is it is it just Jews and Catholics and uh, Protestants and Muslims are all the same? That's not what I'm saying. Uh, there's a particular vocation probably for each community, but how do we mine that community without separating and without placing it above, but without giving up our special gifts, which we now can give to each other freely at different times on our journey. And I've experienced that often where somebody from a different faith community says something to me out of the blue, which I, I reflect upon years later and I say, my God, that, that told me a lot about myself. And I have many examples of that, but I think, you know, Christians who venerate Abraham Joshua Heschel, it's the same thing. And he wasn't a Christian. Uh, and I've had it in more of a contemporary sense, traveling and lecturing around the world. So the prophetic, the late style Jewish prophetic is on the run in exile. And that's the Jewish home, really, historically. When we were supposed to move out of that in our empowerment, we can see there's another exile now, which is permanent. And others are not really going home either. They may find some others of like mind who are Catholic, Jewish, or Muslim. But in general, you're going to find all sorts of folks that you didn't expect. And you're going to say, uh, oh, hi, how are you? Uh, but they may become the most spiritual, valuable spiritual mentors or encouragers in our life journey. Where we where we become more who we are called to be. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Mark. And I think that kind of vision is something we hear a lot from our listeners. You know, what does it mean to be a person of faith, kind of on the fringe of your tradition, but also stuck with your tradition for better and for worse? And yeah, I think I mean it's an open access book, so I think our readers will appreciate having a chance to uh, to check that out. Um, and maybe uh, this is a good way to talk a little bit more about Edward Said as well, who strikes me as, you know, somebody that you've maybe encountered in that new diaspora or kind of, as you're just saying, somebody who has really made an impression on you as you're sort of resonating together in these different ways. What is it about Edward Said that draws you in? Why Edward Said in the context of this, this work? Well, he was Palestinian, and he narrated the Palestinian story in a way that no one has or will. And he constantly reached out to others. And he was quite a character. Uh, he was handsome. He was uh, venerated in the Palestinian community. He was a prince. And hanging around him uh, was quite a thing. Uh, and he's also a super elite, musically, uh, English literaturally, everything. But he's also a man of the people. And the attraction to me was the most important because he embraced me as a religious Jew where he had absolutely no interest in religion at all. And even in my view, ordained me as a rabbi once, 
which is quite an ordination and quite unexpected. So he was a man of um, deep uh, intelligence, of course, one of the major intellectuals of the 20th century, no question. Uh, but he was also uh, charismatic. And when you were around him, you saw the, the people, especially Palestinians, but not only, accept him in a way that Jewish dissidents would never be accepted. So there was a lot there. I didn't, didn't spend much time with him. I don't want to exaggerate it. But he made a profound effect. And there was nothing anti-Jewish about him. He trusted him completely, and he trusted me completely. And that, that was sort of the culmination of my experience of Palestinians, where if you were honest and authentic, you could move with them, and they could move with you. And you didn't have to question all the time. Of course, in the beginning, you had to take risks. You had to get out there. You had to get among Palestinians before they were used to seeing Jews who weren't soldiers. Uh, and I had that experience in the 1980s. And you had to take some uh, blows of uh, people who would say, what we're experiencing is worse than the Holocaust or things that from the Western year would sound anti-Semitic. You had to take a stand back and say, what are they trying to tell me? And of course, for me, it was a journey in recognizing that what I grew up understanding to be Jewish I was seeing something that was opposite. And there were Palestinians, including Naeem Atik, who has a new memoir out, who became almost pastoral counselors for me at times, when he realized how shook up I was recognizing who we as Jews had become. So the journey, my journey among Palestinians has been basic, uh, essential to my life. One that I had to embark on and keep on. But again, it's like the new diaspora. I found Palestinians and others who said, Mark, we're with you. Not trying to diminish my Jewishness, not trying to tell me what I should think, but trusting that we could build a relationship. And with Saeed, it was an immediate sense that we were together, that just trust. And there wasn't a discussion like, what position do you take on this? Of course, he was reading me, which was quite an honor. Uh, and of course, I've read Saeed. But often I think about Saeed, not as a personal friend, although he used to say my friend Mark Ellis, but as a figure, and I'll tell you, I, I even wanted to do a play once where Saeed, in my exile now, comes back to visit me. And we have another discussion. And now, now we're getting into the afterlife. That may be too much. It sounds great, though. I love it. Um, I love hearing about your impressions uh, about Saeed. Uh, it's, um, it's always a special experience to uh, hear someone's firsthand impressions of someone who, you know, you've read your entire life in grad school or whatever, but they're, they're real people who have these real connections. And uh, I think that's, that's really um, beautiful to hear about. Um, well, just to turn to your book here for, for a few minutes, um, a phrase you use throughout your book that I think would be illuminating for our listeners. And I think for me as well, is, uh, is uh, you use the phrase Jews of conscience. 
And you use it in other contexts as well, um, including Christians of conscience and Muslims of conscience and so on. Um, and this is an idea that comes from your writing elsewhere, of course. But could you say a bit more about it here? What does it mean to be a Jew or a Christian or somebody else of conscience? Well, I divide the Jewish community now into three parts. And of course, this is just of interest to me and way of parsing it. We have Constantinian Jews, which you should be familiar with in terms of Christianity, where Jews who have embraced the state of the United States and America as protectors and enablers. We have progressive Jews who have fought them on different issues, including Israel, but are closer to them than they think, and in times of crisis often embrace their views. I call progressive Jews the left wing of Constantinian Judaism. And then we have Jews of conscience who took another step and more steps after that, which divorced them from the community, the mainstream community, and there was no way going back. And that was primarily over the way the Holocaust was being used and what Israel has done and is doing to the Palestinian people. Uh, that there was no way to support the way Holocaust was being used or what was done to the Palestinian people. And we couldn't just say it's complicated, which of course it is complicated. And Christians of conscience too, who take stands that separate them from their community. Now there are a lot more Christians around than Jews. So when you do that, you've got a lot of more brothers and sisters uh, and Jews have less because we're less population. And Muslims too, who say, you know what? I, I, can't, I can't abide by this mainstream power view of Islam or Christianity or Judaism. I can't just separate to some extent, basically allowing the, the, the framework to continue. I've got to go further. Now for Jews, this is difficult but easy because the prophetic and exile are our home. I don't want to minimize it. And each tradition has its own way of dealing with their home. But for Jews, the prophetic and exile are indigenous. And we've had a Jewish civil war for years, maybe all of Jewish history, between empire builders and conscience. And one of the reasons why Jews of uh, Constantinian Jews are so upset with Jews of conscience is that we remind Constantinian Jews of our indigenous prophetic. But the indigenous prophetic is never wholly accepted. It's too dangerous. And I understand why it isn't accepted. But those who are drawn to it and those who pursue it, and that's true in Christianity and Islam and in Hinduism and Buddhism, and in the new diaspora, these people of conscience, including secular people, including secular people. So there's a tradition now of faith and struggle, as I put it, where people of conscience from different backgrounds, again, religious, cultural, geographic, political, are basically in the same boat. They're on the run. They have no way home. And Jews of conscience, around 2000, the second Palestinian uprising, I think realized there wasn't going to be a mending of this rift within the Jewish community. 
uh, they weren't going home. And then I asked, and Saeed asked, helped me to ask, through his relationship with me, what does it mean to be a rabbi at the end of ethical Jewish history? And that's when he ordained me. That's a, a tall uh, a tall question, I guess, to have posed to you. But I think the, the book shows that you've wrestled with it, and uh, it's been a very productive challenge. Um, you know, as you're speaking, it just strikes me that so much of what you're saying uh, resonates with things that we uh, that we talk about on the show a lot. You know, what does it mean to be a Christian when you're also thinking about the challenges of Christian colonialism and anti-Semitism and taking on board all the violence that Christianity has done? And nevertheless, you're kind of, you know, like I said earlier, for better and worse, kind of stuck in that tradition or, you know, you can't or don't really even want to shake it off. And something that I found really helpful in your book is this idea of uh, embodying the prophetic. Uh, so you talk about the prophetic as this practice of kind of calling people to fidelity. And you say, too, that there's complications that come up when even prophets need to be prophesied to. So, you know, I think for many of us, uh, Christian and otherwise, who kind of find ourselves living those tensions, explain some of that to us. Like, what is it like to embody the prophetic in the middle of those kinds of traditions? Well, we have these questions about God and the prophetic, which can be very esoteric. But the prophetic really not only is about justice, but ultimately it's about meaning in the world and in history. And the question whether there's meaning world. So I often say that the prophetic embodies the possibility of justice and the possibility of God and the possibility of meaning. There may be no justice, there may be no God, there may be no meaning. So the embodiment, when you see, when you, you know, these stories about King that I was told by Jewish lawyers who would help the civil rights movement, and I would say to them, what was, there, what was it about Martin Luther King Jr.? Because they would often say there were better preachers, there were better activists, there were better this, there were better this, better they were he was great at all of it but they were better and one of my jewish friends said there was an aura around king he embodied the history of african americans at that moment of time and the prophet embodies that history that doesn't mean they win no and you can recognize it and of course it's like love you don't want to define it too much, otherwise it slips away. There's something about certain people. We just had the birthday of Dorothy Day, whom I knew when I was at the Catholic Worker, and one of the people around her for many years said, Dorothy Day was 95% like all of us and 5% different. She wasn't 100% different. Now, maybe we all have that 5%. Maybe we all do. And the question is, do we use it? And that distinguishes us, not as a way of putting us above, but as a way of separating out the junk of our traditions, of which all of these traditions have it. Uh, the misadventure, and I, one of the titles of my subtitles of my book is Misadventures. The prophetic is a misadventure. And even in theological circles today, in the academy, for instance, know this, you can only go so far or else you'll be abandoned even by those who support you. So when you go too far, 
you're out. What does it mean to be out? And to continue on, you have to dig deeper into a spirituality because most of the what's written about the prophetic is outward. The prophet does this, 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 this. And, but there's an interior to the prophetic, which I've written about. And then you say, what can it be? What If you can't claim God in public, which is another theme of my book, how can you discern the prophetic? How can the prophetic live? In the Bible, the prophets are called by God. But we can't sit there and say, I'm for justice for Palestinians because I, God told me. Or uh, Christians say, I'm for justice for Palestinians because God said so. I, that just, it doesn't go anyplace. So there's now a silence about God, even a rebellion against God. Where is God? A wall most of the time. Uh, and so on and on and on, and that is becoming more extreme. So the embodiment becomes more important. And then within the embodiment, there are special people. Now, that runs against the grain of theology today that someone could be special. And we don't know why they are, but we recognize them. Now, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? That is a great question. But I, I guess I wonder, like, how how much of this idea of the prophetic that you're that you're getting at here, how does it come out of the the notion of the late style of the the collapse of these things in on, on itself? It's just like, I guess I, I I'm thinking back to other liberation theologians, and and they start from places of uh, where, where theology meets history, but but at this you know particular moment, it seems like it's a really hard place for theology to meet history. Um, so in, in what ways do you think that the the types of prophetic comportment in the world and the types of like theology that you're doing like do, do they rely particularly on the late style as as a as a moment in history or is there something else going on well i don't think people want to name it and they don't have to name it late style but i don't think they want to name the fact that the prophetic is a negotiation not a victory you can see that in the bible you can see that throughout history. And Martin Buber, I was just writing about him the last few days. Buber believed that the biblical major biblical figures were all failures, starting with Moses. Now, we can argue about it, but his view was they were all figures that failed. But in the end, within that failure, at some point, that led to redemption. But he gave no details. So that's a question. It may be the prophetic loses, 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 and then there's an opening in history where it comes through. But even if it comes through, it's not going to come through in the way that we thought it would, in the way we wanted it, and it will be less. Or it may not come through at all. You think about Israel-Palestine, and you talk about Palestinian resistance, and you ask, with all this death and destruction, is it worth it, even if they ultimately win? Now, that's for them to answer. And then you talk about Jewish empowerment, which Jews need, but we've abused it to such an extent. And we can see that in this war, that you have to ask yourself the question, is has our empowerment liberated us? Or have we become slaves to our empowerment? Because when I was growing up, 
the idea that Jews would do what we have done in Israel was so foreign to me. I would never, well, I used to say, well, Christians would do that. And they did. And I used to, you know, use that. Uh, you know, Christians, you know, it was, but I was pointing the finger outward. When I realized that I had to point it inward, there was a crisis. How could a Jew do this, 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 and that? That's a theoretical question. The real question, the answer is, we have, we have, we have. Not whether we can. We have. What do you do with that? Now, in Christians, you have all of this theology about Jesus turning the yellow cheek and all. It's the most militarized religion possible. Islam has its own, you know, we, we know this. We've gone through this drill forever. And it gets tiring and very repetitive. Well, I wonder, uh, you know, you were just speaking about the, the crisis now and kind of dealing with the we have question. And, you know, I, I follow you on Facebook, which is uh, a one of the very few reasons that I still use uh, the Facebook app is to uh, get some interesting commentary from people like you and others. And, you know, I've just been following you reflecting uh, in many different ways on the current crisis um, through prose, through painting and, and so on. And, you know, you have this long time relationship with uh, the Palestinian solidarity movement. And maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that. You know, what has it been like to be a Jewish liberation theologian accompanying that struggle, learning from it, engaging it, et cetera? And what is it like to be reflecting on it now? Well, it was forbidden. When I first went among Palestinians, I first went to Israel in 1973 on a dare from my Hebrew school teacher. When he'd come back from Israel after 1967 and was regaling me about the beauty of Israel, which was fine. I had no problem. But I had read an article about these people called Palestinians, and I had no idea who they were. And he said to me, you don't know anything. You've never been there. But in a raised voice, and I thought, oh, whoa. Wow. Why is he so angry? So when I was in Europe for studying, for a semester, I was able to go to Israel by myself, and the Yom Kippur War started when I was there. So it's the 50th anniversary, my 50th anniversary of thinking through and writing about war in Israel-Palestine. And when I was invited back in 1984 to speak on the prophetic, not about Palestine, but just the prophetic in gen general, I was invited to Israel-Palestine. I said I would go if they would host me for a couple of weeks and I could meet Palestinians. So that's when I started traveling in the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, that's when I started traveling in West Bank and Gaza and Jerusalem. And of course, it was weird. Some places I, I was told, don't say you're Jewish. Other places you said you could. And I was uh, hit hard, not because people were angry with me, but because they were angry with Israel. And I kept on. I met Naeem Atik and wrote my book, Toward a Jewish Theology of Liberation, in 1987. It was published. In 85 was my first essay because what I saw there was wrong. And I had to find my voice. And basically, from that moment on, I've been finding my voice and refinding it and refining it. And in each war, it gets tested again and to keep on. So 
What I found among Palestinians that I met was an anger with what had happened to them and what was happening to them, and not an anti-Semitism, which the Jewish establishment often tries to bring up. Uh, they were angry because their land was taken. They were exiled. They're bombed, murdered. And I wrote yesterday about martyrdom, my experience of Palestinian martyrdom. And I thought to myself, wow. Because I had grown up learning about Jewish martyrs. And then in Gaza in 84, I was sitting in a home, simple, without a floor, really, but neat. And there was a, a framed picture of a young man. I asked, well, what, what, who is this? It was a son who was killed by an Israeli soldier, and they called him a martyr. And I thought, whoa, are we martyring another people? Now, the option is to step away. No, that's not. It's not the same. And, you know, we're, we're, we're the people who are the martyrs and call it something else or think of it in a different way. But instead, I thought, I've got to think about this. Then, of course, even in um, Christianity, when I went to Marinol and Romero, the sisters were killed. I was teaching at Marinol, and they referred to them as martyrs. And I thought to myself, Christians have martyred Jews for a long, long time, and now they're calling them martyrs. This is another link. And the sisters were martyred not because they were giving out pamphlets, catechisms, but they were giving out food. And Palestinians were not martyred not because they hated Jews, but because they wanted their land back. They wanted their own dignity. So my experience among Palestinians, without romanticizing Palestinians or Jews or anyone, is in this context of Israel's repression and dislocation of Palestinians as a people, they're innocent. Now, what they do with that innocence, we can talk about and they can talk about. And some of it's horrific. And of course, Israel was born in violence. And I wrote today, that South Africa was born not only through nonviolence, but also violence. I don't want to see anybody killed. But my experience of Palestinians is they haven't been able to organize their violence like the state of Israel has. And after the Holocaust, Jews in Israel said, we Jews couldn't organize violence in the Holocaust. That's why we couldn't defend ourselves. So I understand the need for Jews to organize their ability to fight back. And Israel's done that. But what are we doing with it? We are bombing into oblivion a defenseless civilian population. So we're squandering the lessons of the Holocaust, in my view. And that, in that way, we begin to squander, or we have squandered, our witness to the world. Now, this is very important to me as a Jew. Our witness to the world and our witness to ourselves. What does it mean to be Jewish? Now, Christians grapple with this. Too. What does it mean to be a Christian after this history, as you say, or Muslim after their history? So we're not alone, but we prided ourselves in being different.
And there's never been a time in Jewish history where we didn't say we're different, whether we were or not. That's a different issue. Uh, Jews, yeah. have always, Jews have always believed that we're different and exceptional, which we may not be, but we can't operate unless we have some of that then extended to others in a universal sense and ask you, what is your exceptionality? What do you offer to the world? This is what we offer. We need what you offer too. You need what we offer. What? How can we be better together with this mutual offering of things that might be a little bit out there, but have a ring of truth? Uh, I like the way you're putting that, and uh, I think it's it's you know really kind of generative and, and encouraging to me too to reflect on that question. What is it that I or my community has to offer? And I think that's a great kind of unique uh, provocation that you're you're making here. Um, and I, I want to thank you too for sharing the your your insights about what's happening in Palestine. I think that's a very difficult and prophetic word. Um, but I want to kind of think more about what you were just saying, this sort of unique role um, that that Jews play and your understanding of Judaism plays, especially as it relates to all these other liberation theology, theologians and theologies that you've been around. You know, you were saying you're teaching at Mary Knoll. Uh, you have this long history with other Christian theologians, too. Um, what's that been like for you, being a Jewish liberation theologian? You know, what, what's it like for you to teach seminarians at Mary Knoll? Maybe that's one place to start. And then what's it like to be dialoguing with all these other uh, theological folks? Well, it wasn't just seminarians. We created a program, a Master's of Theology, which was the most progressive theology studies program in the world at the time, I think. Got Master's in Justice and Peace. And it was in different ways, a way for me to reflect on who I was, because, of course, there were no Jews there. And there were very interesting Christians, many of them characters, especially the missionaries. And you had to ask yourself, what, what the heck am I doing there? Uh, and um, I found myself, of course, asking myself within relation to being Jewish, because liberation theology is about the poor who need to be empowered. The Jewish theology of liberation is a suffering people who's become empowered. What do you do with that? And what was amazing to me was the liberation theologians and the top ones and the, and the other ones where I traveled around the world were very accepting and curious about this Jewishness. And they had a hard time accepting Palestinian suffering as important to them because they knew the history of anti-Semitism. But it made me reflect being, I, I knew from a very young age, for some reason, that I couldn't understand what it meant to be Jewish only among Jews. I don't know why that's so, but from a very young age. And it happened through a teacher I had and going to the Catholic worker and then a Mary Knoll priest reading one of my, my first book and then inviting me to teach at Mary Knoll. And all of a sudden, I was traveling around the world with. I've, as a Jew, I've traveled to more mission sites than any Jew in history, and some of them were really retro, and some of them were really progressive. And I had asked myself, well, what does liberation mean for them listening, and what does it mean for us as Jews now empowered? So the main difference is liberation theologies are looking toward empowerment. Jews 
suffering have been empowered, what can we share with them about our empowerment, the lessons of our empowerment? Now, the question of God among the people who are suffering, of course, I had that question too. Where is the God in history? For Jews then, for Palestinians now, for those Jews who were slaughtered on October 7th, where's God? Uh, where's God in uh, Guatemala? I was teaching people who were experiencing other people's suffering and didn't know what to do it because they were taught as Christians, here's the catechism, Jesus Christ is with you and you know the whole thing. And it didn't look like that on the ground. Now, Jews were specialists in the world is unredeemed. Okay, but then we had power and we were making sure that others felt that it was unredeemed. What did that mean? So, my traveling among Christians, sometimes Muslims, not as many, around the world, and then Israel-Palestine formed me, and of course the, my experience as the Catholic worker, formed me at a very deep level of things that were inside of me that probably would have never become articulate without that journey. And that's why I think most of my writing is about encounters with others uh, and reflecting then back on what it meant to me or what it means to me or what it could mean to us. Um, it's it's crazy here how much of the encounter plays into your, I mean, your life, but also your work as well. I, I wonder, though, how, how you think about the encounter and building solidarity and in, in that particular type of movement, right? I, I guess we don't really have an, an active theological solidarity network like uh, maybe has existed in the past, at least not as, as strong as they were. It exists, you know, somewhat for sure. But is there a future of liberation uh, is there a future of liberation theology? I mean, w without that strong network of solidarity, like as it maybe used to exist, or or could could it rebloom? Do you think? I guess what does liberation theology look like in this sort of like weird late style moment um, where we're we're struggling to connect with the other um, as they might exist in the world? I think that's a good question. Um, the 1988 conference that I directed honoring Gustavo Gutierrez was titled The Future of Liberation Theology. We had the liberation theologians from around the world. And one of the things that he said then and since is it doesn't matter what you call it. You don't have to call it liberation theology. It's the kind of theology that is there for others who are suffering and is there as a movement for more justice without getting into slogans which can't be delivered upon. I think this is the next step, is that what liberation theology wanted isn't going to happen. And you can't claim that God is simply there and will make it happen or through them. And it's a very sophisticated theology, very beautiful theology. But that's not how it works in history. The poor are not the drivers of history in the way that it was often thought. They are a part of history. And there's a negotiation between the poor and the people who understand, people of conscience and the powerful. And we, we lose 
And maybe increasingly, maybe not. Maybe this is just the same over and over and over again. So the spirituality has to be one of movement and activism, but also thought about what we can claim and what we can't claim and what claims make sense beyond ourselves and what make, claims make no sense that are just there to be performative to say we're with it. So that's my argument with some theologies now where liberation theologies in different guises are ways to tenure in the academy. So you don't want to court sacrifice, although that's a very Christian theme. Most of the Christians who talk about sacrifice do not sacrifice. But in the end, if you go into exile, you're going to sacrifice. And what does that sacrifice mean? And how do you deal with the trauma of sacrifice to keep going on? So the prophetic has to deal with trauma, which is a large part of the prophetic, because the prophetic, what we want, may happen on the margin somewhere. It may go backward. The negative may explode somewhere else, even as something gets better somewhere. We need a new kind of theology, which lets the prophetic and also critiques the prophetic as it's been when it needs to be. Uh, I think that is a good and challenging word. It's very hard for me to uh, <laughs> to hear, you know, liberation theology maybe as kind of uh, run aground or it's losing steam or we need something different, I guess, because I'm so attached to it. I actually, as you were speaking, I was just thinking, I just started reading Gutierrez's book, uh, The Power of the Poor in History, which I had never read before. So it's just a, a funny kind of irony, maybe that I need to think more about. But um you know, we're coming up to the end of the hour here, and this might be a bit of a, a gear switch, but it just strikes me that you're a good storyteller. And what Matt said about encounters is really uh, important and something you've mentioned a lot. And I wonder, just as we kind of get to the end, you know, would you share with us maybe an encounter you had with a, a liberation theologian that has just really stuck with you or continues to resonate with you? Well, I'm going to give you a story that is not from a theologian. I was traveling to a talk, really funny, I was traveling, especially during the first uprising, all over the place. And I arrived in the city in the United States, picked up by a big limo. I mean, one of these limos that famous actors have. And I was asked to talk at an Islamic gathering, and the driver was Islamic, Muslim. And I was in the back by myself, so we had this huge gulf. And he finally said to me in a kind of Quranic way, you must be very happy. And I wanted to get out a megaphone and say, uh, excuse me, what did you say? You must be very happy, Professor Ellis. Actually, I wasn't. I was saying to myself, long trip, what am I doing here? It doesn't matter. And I said, why do you say that? And he said, because you're practicing justice. Now, this is not an academic or a theologian. I must be very happy. I was not happy. I was Jewish and I was anxious. But I have many encounters. Oh, James Cone and well, Dorothy Day and Gustavo Gutierrez. I once said to Gustavo Gutierrez when I invited him to my center, I feel very alone. And he said, with the retreat of all these people who came, he said, you have many friends. 
you're not alone. So these encounters with the, the known and the unknown, even when they pushed me back, especially the early James Cone was not really interested in dealing with whites. He used to push me back. That was a good point, although he would later embrace me. Uh, and feminist theologians like Rosemary Radford Ruther, I happened to be in a situation where I was around all of the great ones. And some of them were very egotistical and some of them were not. Some of them were building their own empires and some of them were not. But they all taught me something upon reflection about my own journey because I was the one who wasn't known. And of course, Edward Said, who wasn't religious at all. So these encounters, if you look at my writing, you'll see the people that I encountered. It's sort of endless. It's not trying to name drop, as somebody once said, when I I said I actually knew, I actually knew them. Uh, and I ate the dinner and lunch with Dorothy Day, and that was it. And when I was beat up once in the Catholic worker, and maybe this is the story I'll tell, I was having the house on Christmas Day, and Dorothy was down peeling potatoes for the soup because she didn't like the unpeeled potatoes in the soup. And a guy came in on Christmas Day, and he was shouting at her. And I said, Henry, I'm going to have to take you out of this house if you don't stand up and act right. In which case, he slugged me, he kneed me in the groin, and grabbed me in a headlock, which I thought I couldn't breathe. Finally, he let go, and I went back to the table, and Dorothy whispered to me, I was praying for you. And I thought to myself, what I needed was physical help. He was gonna, he was gonna kill me. But then when her sainthood came up, and I was asked to testify, which didn't happen because of COVID, I thought to myself, maybe that was a miracle which I had never thought about before and wouldn't claim. So if you're living around liberation theologians and encountering them, things happen which really make you think about your own tradition, about your own self and your place in the world and your place among them. And it's not always simple, not at all. And that's how, we, how I would discuss my encounters that are many, 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 many. And I'm grateful for them. That, that's amazing. Uh, you got one of the real in-person intercessions <laughs> from from Dorothy Day. Really, <laughs> really great. Can't get over it. Well, we're we're here with. Okay, here, here's oh, please, no, please, yeah, of course. On Easter, when I was at the Catholic Worker, I was invited over to someone's home in Connecticut. And when I came back, I was opening the door, and Dorothy was coming down the stairs. She didn't come down the stairs often because there were long stairs and she was older and hard to get through. As I opened the door, she looked at me and she said, oh, Mark. I said, oh, she remembers my name. And then Dorothy had a way of, when she wanted to, to kiss on the lips chastely to people that she was close to. And the next thing I knew, I said to myself, Dorothy Day is gonna kiss me, and she did. Then in the Philippines, teaching there, and they knew a lot about Dorothy Day. One of the professors said that that was uh, a relic in a way, because to be kissed by a saint. 
but it was embarrassing to me. But she, I said to myself, Dorothy Day is going in the middle of that. She did. Truly amazing. I could listen to these stories all day. Um, this is so fascinating, especially when you think about them in this context of encounter, though, as being sort of crucial to the the whole endeavor of theology. Well, um, given that we are here with you, encountering you, I mean, digitally in a way, I guess, um, what's a prophetic word that you'd want to leave with us and to the, uh, the people listening? Stop the bombing of Gaza. Let Gaza right. be free. Cease fire now. But I mean a real one, but also negotiate a settlement where Palestinians can be free in their own homeland. Do something. Don't make this another stalemate ending with all this destruction on death and death on both sides. Do something, for God's sakes, that changes the situation. And I'm afraid it isn't going to happen. Thanks, Mark, for a difficult word at the end. It's been great to have you with us. Uh, for folks who want more, there's lots of uh, writing and other pieces of media that you can find with Mark. And uh, most recently, this book, First Delight, we'll have a link to it in the notes for this episode. You can read it for free online or you can buy a paper copy of it as well. Um, Mark, uh, I hope someday we can have you back and we can just do an, an hour of uh, really great stories and narratives of encounter. I think <laughs> that would be valuable if you have it in you one day. Um, in the meantime, uh, where can people find you? Where should they be looking for you? Uh, yeah, how can they you know, keep in touch with what, what you're doing? Well, I'm in exile. I'm at home in exile. They can find me through my books and my writings on Facebook and other writings through my time. And sometimes people get to come to visit me. And if they visit me in person, they get a painting. That's and a pretty good deal. <laughs> Yeah, if they want to Zoom, or maybe if I get better, as I get better, uh, I'm glad to travel if I can and encounter other people. I miss those encounters because they're the lifeblood of theology, really. And every book of mine has started with some kind of counter encounter. So, and uh, people call me for advice, and I always tell them I'm not going to be helpful. And uh, at the end of it, I say, uh, how have I not been helpful? And if they say that, we're on time. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Uh, well, I'm sure after this, you'll have no shortage of uh, folks who want your unhelpful advice. Um, and uh, we'll have you back for sure in the future. Um, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Um, go read Mark's book, First Light. It's great. Um, it's very interesting, and uh, it's got a lot of cool stuff in there. The, in the way that it sort of blends uh, his personal writings, uh, more theological writing, and then also some art is very fascinating. You'll definitely like it. Our intro music is by Amari Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord.
Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.